How are we doing today? Good. It is good to see you guys. Like Daniel said, this is oh, our last uh, service of the year. So uh, I'm just going to work on this. Uh, it has been fun getting to go through the Sermon on the Mount with all of you this semester. Um, if you're new with us this morning, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount all semester um, in a series that we've called the Upside Down Kingdom. And uh, the reason that we called it that is because in the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> Jesus has been taking us through what it looks like uh, to live life in the kingdom of God. And we've seen that life in the kingdom looks a lot different than life in this world. The things that God values are different than the things that this world values. And so today we're going to wrap up this sermon. It's been three chapters out of Matthew we've spent our entire semester on so far. And uh, with the passage we're looking at today, Jesus is kind of calling his listeners to a final response to everything that he has said here. Um, So we're going to jump into what I, at least at one point in my life, called... Um, one of the scariest passages in Scripture. It is kind of a scary passage, um, but there's, there's also a lot of hope in it. So let's read this. This is Matthew 7, uh, 21 through 29. This is Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, and not as their scribes. Okay, um, so as I was saying, this passage can be a little bit scary. It's kind of sobering uh, to some degree to see that Jesus says, hey, there's going to be people that come up to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to tell them to depart from him uh, because he never knew them. So let's pray and ask God uh, that he would guide us this morning. Lord, we love you. Uh, You are our king. God, we want to celebrate you in every aspect of our lives, God. We we love getting to gather here. to, to sing worship songs to you, God. I know that a lot of the songs we're singing this morning, we remember uh, what you did in coming to the earth and taking on flesh. God, we, we want to remember the words that you spoke while you were here in the flesh as well. God, we want to be people that take heed to the things that you say. God, we want to be people that understand what you say and people that act on it. God, help us to be like the wise man that built his house on the rock. God, we ask you for your guidance this morning as we work through the scripture. Speak to our hearts, Lord. I pray that it wouldn't be me speaking, but that it would be you. Lord, that I would not teach from my own authority, but I would teach from your authority. God, work in our hearts. Bring us closer to you. We love you, and it's in your son's awesome name we pray. Amen. Okay, um, so when I look at this passage, uh, I see kind of three major sections of it. There's a few things going on. First, we see that there are some people that are going to be surprised on Judgment Day. Uh, That they're going to come up to the Lord and they're going to expect entrance into the kingdom of heaven and they will be denied. 
Second, I see that there are two types of foundations that you can build your life on. You can either choose to build on the rock or you can choose to build on the sand. And then finally, we see that Jesus' teaching was amazing. It was different from that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and this wowed the people to some regard. So first, let's take a look at uh, that first section there, the confused people in verses 21 through 23. I'll read it again. Uh, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Okay, so this is scary, right? Last week, if you're with us, I know most of you are home on Thanksgiving, uh, we talked about these two different gates, the narrow gate and the wide gate. And the narrow gate that, that leads to life and the wide, broad gate that many will go through that leads to destruction. So that was kind of a sobering thing. And then now, uh, Jesus tells us that there's even people that seem to think that they're entering through the narrow gate. People that seem to think that they're on the straight and narrow. And yet, they're going to be surprised uh, when judgment <coughs> day comes. Now, uh, if we look at these people, they definitely seem to have a pretty good resume, right? Like, it, it, it's not surprising to us that they would come up to the Lord and expect entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Look at the things that qualify them. Uh, they, they say to Jesus, Lord, Lord. So they have some sort of recognition of him being a, a, a figure that's worth revering. Uh, you can argue necessarily about what extent they mean by when they say Lord, Lord, but nonetheless, they're definitely honoring him in some way. Um, they prophesied in his name. They cast out demons in his name. They performed miracles in his name. I look at this and I say, dang, like that's a better resume than mine. I've never cast a, a demon out. I've never uh, performed a, a miracle. And yet uh, these people are coming to the Lord and, and they're being denied. So what's going on here? Why is it that Jesus is saying that they will not be entering into the kingdom of heaven? Well, let's break down what's going on. They come saying, Lord, Lord. Um, You've heard the phrase before, of course, don't hear everything, don't believe everything that you hear. Um, It is very easy to give lip service to something without actually honoring that, without actually believing that. Uh, I read in an ABC News poll that 83% of Americans identify themselves as Christians. So that means that 83% of our country would be people that would be comfortable making a statement like this. Um, coming up to Jesus and calling him Lord, Lord. There, there's some sort of uh, willingness to declare him as Lord. But I think that we are very well aware that 83% of our country uh, does not have any sort of a meaningful faith at all. Okay, I don't know what the percentages are, uh, but I think that we know just from the people that we interact with on a regular basis that it's probably not 83% of people that have actually made Jesus Lord of their lives. And you know, the church is full of people that are willing to say, Lord, Lord, but that may not actually have a true saving faith. Okay, you see, Jesus says, it's not just the people that come up to me and say, Lord, Lord, but what does he say? It's the ones that do the will of my Father. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute, that sounds a lot like salvation based on works. Doesn't the Bible teach that salvation is based on grace? Through faith. Why is it that Jesus is saying that these people who call him Lord, Lord won't enter into heaven, but the ones that do the will of the Father will? What what is he getting at with this? You see, 
your faith in the work of Christ is the qualifying factor for your salvation. You are right if you believe in salvation by faith through grace, by grace through faith. That is the consistent teaching of the Bible. You're right in that understanding. But we have to understand what faith truly is. But just to rest your fears maybe about this idea, man, I have to work my way into heaven. Let me just give you a quick, brief, cursory look at uh, the, the clear doctrine that we are saved by our faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, uh, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Jesus says in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and whoever, what, believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Um, Paul wrote this in Titus, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I could go on and on and on with plenty of passages that show us how it is our faith that justifies us by the grace of God. Yet, here we have Jesus saying that it's the ones that do the will of the Father that enter. And these people that seem to have some sort of faith are not going to be entering. Is the Bible contradicting itself? Does Jesus disagree with himself at times? Does Jesus contradict Paul? What is it that's going on here? I think the key to our understanding is understanding what is it that true faith actually is. You know, when we say that we're saved by faith, what is it that that actually means? And I want to go to the book of James to help us understand that a little bit more. This is a kind of lengthy passage, but I think it'll be helpful. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 20, and then we'll skip down to 26. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But, you, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead." Um, you could preach a couple sermons out of that passage alone, so I don't have time to get into it too much. Uh, but the, the very clear thought that James is communicating here is that faith and works go hand in hand together. Okay, So your works can't save you. You can never be good enough to, to earn your way into heaven. But if you have a true faith, it will manifest itself in works. There is, there is no option other than that. Okay, A real saving faith has to be accompanied by works. Um, Faith that has no works, James says, is dead. It's completely useless. It has no power. Okay, you could sit here and say, yeah, I, I have faith that airplanes are reliable. You know, I, I think that they're beautiful. I see them fly all the time, whatever. But until you're really ready to get onto that airplane, your faith in the airplane's ability to fly is no good. Your true faith will actually be shown in whether or not you're willing to act out on the things that you say you believe. And so this is the kind of faith that saves you're still not working your way into heaven. It's a faith in Christ. It's completely the works that he's done. But if you really believe that he's done that, if you really believe that he's died on the cross for your sins, then it will bring 
works for. And that's what James is getting at here. So I can only conclude that the people who are coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, Lord, are the possessors of the dead faith that James warned is useless. They're willing to say the name of Jesus as Lord, but they're not willing to actually live that with their lives. Which is why he would identify them as, and he tells them, hey, it's not these people that just say Lord, Lord. It's the ones that actually do the will of my Father. Jesus is looking for a true faith that's alive. And so you might say, well, what about all the stuff that they did? Right? Like, it looks like they do have faith that works. I mean, not only do they say, Lord, Lord, but look at all this stuff. Like, it, it says that they cast out demons. It says they, they prophesied in his name. It says they worked miracles. How, how can you say that their faith is dead? And with that, I have to say there's a couple of possibilities here. Um, first possibility is that they didn't actually do these things, okay? Uh, Jesus doesn't either confirm or deny whether or not those things happen. He doesn't directly address it. What he does do is tell them why they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven, and he gives them two reasons for that, because they're doers of lawlessness and because they never knew him, and we'll get more to that in a second. Um, so he doesn't directly address, we don't get confirmation or denial about whether or not it happened. So there's a chance that they didn't actually do these things. Um, in the ancient world, pretty much all illness was attributed to demons. Uh, so if you did anything to help somebody get better, maybe you would have said that you cast out a demon or that you worked a miracle uh, in the name of Jesus. Um, so wh whatever, maybe that's a possibility. But let's just say that they did, you know, because Jesus doesn't actually deny uh, these things. So the other option is that they did these things, but they were not out of a, a true faith in Jesus. They were for some other sort of motive, even though they might have said it was in his name. That has the same level of emptiness that their proclamation of Lord, Lord had. They do lots of good things, maybe for who knows what reason. Maybe because they want other people to think that they look good. Maybe because they want to be famous. Maybe because they want to be seen in a certain way. And so they do all these kind of good things, but it's not actually in the name of the Lord. And it doesn't actually come from a true faith in God. You know, the book of Acts uh, introduces us to several people who tried to use God to become more powerful um, or to be able to deceive others, whatever. We, we actually see a lot of um, signs or wonders happening from, from people that aren't really exercising real faith in God. Acts 19, uh, we see that God was moving so powerfully through the Apostle Paul that there were some Jewish exorcists who decided to throw the name of Jesus into their repertoire to help them. So there's these Jewish guys that didn't believe in Jesus, but they go around casting out demons. They saw how successful Paul was, so they decided, hey, in the name of the Jesus that Paul preaches, I tell you to come out. It didn't go well for those guys, if you look up the passage in Acts 19. But nonetheless, we see th these guys probably had some level of success in exercising demons prior to that, right? They were known as exorcists. Another example comes in Acts 8. There was a man named Simon the sorcerer. And uh, Simon, it says that he was a, a wowing the people with all these kind of great things that he did. And he was doing this stuff before he was a Christian. And it says later he accepted the word of God, but then he also tried to buy the power to give the Holy Spirit to people. So, um, I don't know. Once again, we kind of see some, some bad motives going on with, with crazy things there. Um, we also look at the, uh, the false beast that is, comes in Revelation 13. Revelation 13, 13 through 14 says this. Uh, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. There are crazy stories that you uh, may hear or maybe even some of you experience from people that practice voodoo or are part of the occult where there's some sort of crazy 
almost miraculous type things that seem to be happening. So just because a sign or a wonder happens doesn't necessarily mean that it was done in Jesus' name or that God was the one that was working in the, through the power here. Um, I can't tell you I understand everything about how that works, about what kind of things dark spiritual forces are able to do. Uh, but I can say that just because these people uh, were doing some of these kind of things, once again, does not necessarily prove that they actually had a genuine faith in Jesus. So, um, what we've seen from Jesus' interaction with these people is that the kind of faith that professes Jesus as Lord but doesn't actually follow him will not grant entrance into the kingdom of heaven. If you're staking your faith in Christ on the fact that you prayed the sinner's prayer when you were 13 years old, or you tell other people, hey, yeah, you can be, all you got to do is repeat after me. But there's no actual faith. There's no works that accompany that, that flow from that. That's not the kind of faith that saves. We also see that doing great works will not grant entrance into the kingdom of heaven either. All the amazing things that these people did weren't good enough to be able to get them into the kingdom. Okay, and there are a lot of people that go this route. So a lot of people even mix the two of them together. Uh, they kind of say the sinner's prayer. Most of their life is operated around the idea of doing good works. But at the end of the day, that doesn't really cut it, does it? Um, there are a lot of people on our campus that, that are, you know, good people. People in our churches that are what the world would call um, good people. But in reality, they're trusting that they're going to be able to come to the gates of the kingdom of heaven and say, God, let me in because of all these things that I've done. And that won't work. You know what Jesus says to these people? He says, uh, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So they had two problems. One was that they didn't know Jesus. And the other was that he sees them as those who practice lawlessness. Now, when Jesus says, I never knew you, he's talking about an intimate knowledge here. Okay, he's not just saying, like, I didn't know your name. or who you are. Of course, like, God knows these kind of things. Like, he talks about how he knows the hairs in our head. But when he, talks, when he says that I never knew you. He's saying we never had any sort of a relationship. There was no real interaction between us, right? Like, think about your relationship with the President of the United States. Um, you know things about him. Hopefully you can at least name who he is. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, you probably know a lot more than just that because the media likes to talk about him. You might feel like you know him on some level. Uh, maybe if you uh, helped with his electoral campaign, uh, you've even done things in his name. You know, you've made phone calls for the, the president or you've um, you know, gone around knocking door to door to try and help him, whatever. You've done these kind of things in his name. But despite uh, the, your knowledge of him, despite the things that you've done for him, guess what? You still don't know him. And if you tried to invite him over for lunch, you'd say, I don't know you. <laughs> it's not going to work, right? There's no relationship that's there. And so I have to ask, is this the kind of relationship that you have with Jesus? Do you have the kind of relationship where you kind of know of him, right? Like you hang out around people that talk about him. You come to church, you're listening to this message, you kind of hear things from the Bible. You could say a lot of stuff about him. Maybe you go out and, and you kind of get caught up in what others do. If we go do a service project, you go do that. Or you even go out and, and share your faith with people on campus, but you realize, man, I don't really know Jesus. Like, I don't interact with him. I don't, I don't talk to him. I don't pray to him. I don't listen to him. I don't read his word in the scriptures. And man, I, I, I would tell you, man, there's nothing more important than knowing Jesus. 
I would hope that you would move from knowing of him to truly knowing him, right? That's what Jesus has saved us for, is not just to save us from the wrath of God, but to save us from the wrath of God and into a relationship with himself. Jesus said that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, the people that Jesus didn't know, he identified them as something. He says, you who practice lawlessness. Now, when we look at what these people did, that would seem to be a strange thing to qualify them as, right? You who practice lawlessness. How many people in here would would like to identify as a person who practices lawlessness? It's the same as calling yourself, yes, I'm a sinner, right? We don't like to use that as an identifying factor for ourselves. But when Jesus looks at these people and they come to him, guess what he sees? The truth. He sees that that's what they actually are. And guess what? I want to tell you this. You are a person who does lawlessness. Okay? The only question is whether God sees you that way or not. And you know the only thing that makes a difference? Whether you know Jesus. You see all of these kind of good things that you can do. If you did a million good things, do those erase the bad things? No, they don't. Like, all of your works are, are, are still there, right? Even if, if you've done some bad thing, you've, and we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, we've looked at, you, you probably sin way more than you think you do. If you've been listening to the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus tells us that, that getting angry with your brother, you're, you're guilty of murder, or that lusting after a woman, uh, you're guilty of adultery. You see these kind of things, uh, probably break your, your oaths all the time. You probably don't always keep the, the things that you say you will do. You look at all this kind of stuff, you see, man, I, I am a doer of lawlessness. And even if you do all of these other great kind of things, they don't erase that scarlet letter that you carry. But you know what can? The blood of Jesus Christ. That's what his sacrifice on the cross was for. You see, no matter how many good works you do, you can never erase the bad that you've done. But the one who can is Jesus Christ. Because God is a just God. And he promises that he will punish sin. And so the question is, will your sin be punished upon you or will it be punished upon Jesus? The one who willingly sacrificed himself on the cross to take the just punishment of God that we deserve. And he took it upon himself. So that his blood would cleanse us. And even though you are a doer of lawlessness, even though you are a sinner, even though you are one that has done many wrong things, God will no longer identify you as that. Because the wrath that you deserve for your sin was poured out upon Jesus. And the reason why you're not seen as a doer of lawlessness is because you know him. You see, the two of these things go hand in hand. The fact that Jesus saw these people as doers of lawlessness was because they did not know him. But if you know Jesus, you will not be seen as a doer of lawlessness because of what he did. So, um, I love the way that the Apostle Paul puts this in Colossians. He says, When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us All our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, uh, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Everything that can be said against you, if you have put your faith in Jesus, that true saving faith has been nailed to the cross. There is no indictment that can be brought against you because Jesus has paid for it. And so when you come to him on the day of judgment, you won't have to bring forth the resume of, Lord, I did this, Lord, I did this, Lord, I did this. Because you're not going to be seen as a doer of lawlessness. You'll be seen as a son of God. Uh, 
John chapter 1 talks about to as many as believe in him, he, becomes, he gives them the right to become children of God. And that's how you'll be seen. So to sum up the difficult part of this text that we've been looking at this far, uh, we see that an empty proclamation of faith in Jesus, uh, even if it is accompanied by great works, is no replacement for true faith in Jesus and an actual relationship with him. Knowing Jesus is the only way to be forgiven of sin, and therefore it is the only way into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, The true faith that's required to know Jesus will inevitably include good works, which means that knowing Jesus and doing the Father's will go hand in hand. I hope that was clear. I know that's a difficult passage. Uh, If you're still fuzzy on it, I'd love to uh, speak with you more after the service. We can get get together and talk more. Um, But I want to move on to the the next part of what Jesus says here. Uh, He gives us a final illustration that causes the listeners to a response. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So you're in this room. You've heard the words of Jesus. We've been reading the Bible together. We've been discussing it. The only question is really, how are you going to respond? You see, the wise man and the foolish man both hear the words of Jesus. The thing that differentiates them is their response. The wise man hears and acts, while the foolish man hears but does not act. So you've been instructing a lot of things this semester. Uh, Looking back through the Sermon on the Mount, just to run through some of the things we've seen. We've seen that God calls those blessed that the world might not. We've seen that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We've seen that Jesus fulfilled the law. We've seen that anger towards your brother makes you guilty of murder, so you need to resolve disputes quickly. We've seen that lust makes you guilty of adultery, so you need to take great measures to fight against this sin. We've seen that we need to keep our word, especially our marriage vows. We've seen uh, that you should not retaliate when somebody else wrongs you. We've seen that you should love both your neighbor and your enemies. We've seen uh, that we need to forgive others just as God has forgiven us. <clears throat> We've seen that we should not store up our treasures on earth, but rather store them in heaven. We've seen uh, that we should not worry, but rather seek God's kingdom and trust him to provide. We've seen that we shouldn't judge, but rather be helpful to others out of love. We've seen that we should treat others how we want to be treated. We've seen that we should enter through the narrow gate that leads to life, and we've seen that we should watch out for false prophets. We've looked at all this kind of stuff and much more. Um, But just hearing it doesn't make you wise. You know, we have this false notion in our culture that if you learn something, that automatically means that you've matured or that you've grown in your faith. I don't know where that comes from. I mean, maybe because it's the first part of growth. It's It's kind of the easier part of growth is acquiring knowledge. It's a good first step. But if you don't actually do anything with it, it's not going to do you any good. Imagine a uh, babysitter that was hired to to watch a baby, and the parents kind of give some detailed instructions of what exactly they they want the babysitter to do. And so they they go off for their date night or whatever, and uh, the babysitter gets right to memorizing everything that the parents said word for word. Like, they do a really good job. As a matter of fact, she calls her friends, they invite her, they, they invite 
them to come over and they have a study about what it is that the parents said and what it might look like if they did that. Um, and, and, you know, they, they think, oh, yeah, this is great. We need to tell other people what the parents said and all this kind of stuff. But they forget to actually do it. They forget to actually put the baby to sleep or feed it or make sure it doesn't run out in the street or whatever it may be. Um, that would be a terrible babysitter, right? Like, although they did all these kind of things and they could repeat verbatim exactly what it was that the parents said, will the parents be satisfied with the job of that babysitter? No, because they failed in the only thing that really mattered, which was carrying out what it was that they said to do. We need to be people that don't do that. Don't think that just because you know something, it means you're a mature Christian. Okay? The one who hears these words and acts on them is wise. He's learned to live in the upside-down kingdom rather than the one of this world. And Jesus compares this guy uh, to a wise man that built his house on the rock. So I, I have a little illustration this morning. I uh, have a rock over here, as you may see. Those of you that can't see it as well in the background. Nice big rock. <coughs> yeah. And uh, this, is, this rock, imagine this to be the teaching of Jesus. He's laid something that is solid, that's true, that's firm for us to be able to build our lives on. So let's take this dowel rod. Imagine this to be a, a big tower. And uh, we'll plant this right in there and build our house on this rock. Now, Jesus says that the, the wise man that does this um, is, is going to experience some storms, right? He says that the rain falls and the winds blow, the floods come, all these kind of things. Doesn't make any difference, right? I could sit here and pour water on this all day. It's not going to matter. Someone with stronger lungs than me can try and blow it over. It doesn't matter. That, that thing is not going anywhere, right? Because we understand that it has been founded upon the rock. The teaching of Jesus is trustworthy, it's true, it stands the test of time and trials. And I want you to notice that, that Jesus didn't say the man who builds his house on the rock found a great place where storms never come to. That's not what he said. Matter of fact, he actually takes it as a given that storms will come. The great thing about building on the rock is not the fact that it prohibits storms from coming at all, but that the house still stands when they do come. And this is where the prosperity gospel goes wrong. The prosperity gospel is this false version of the gospel uh, that's preached by the false prophets that Jesus warned about. And it's the kind of thing that says, oh, if you live a good life and, and you're pleasing to God, you're not going to have to go through any of the bad things or trials, and you're, you're going to be rich, and you're going to be healthy, and everything is going to go well and perfect for you because you deserve it. And God will give you what he owes you because you've lived a righteous life. That's not the biblical teaching, okay? That's not what Jesus says. Instead, he offers us a firm foundation that we can build on. So when things do come, when you do get a bad diagnosis at the doctor, when you do have a loved one that dies, when something happens in this world that doesn't make sense, you're able to return to the rock. You have a solid foundation. If you've seen people go through great suffering, or if maybe if you've gone through it yourself, I would guess that you've been able to see the difference between the person who walks through this with God and the one who doesn't, okay? Um, 
I, even just seeing all of my grandparents have passed away now, uh, but just even seeing my, my different grandparents and, and where they were in their faith with Jesus and seeing them go through the process of death, uh, seeing the uh, people around them in my family, some of which are Christians and some of which are not, seeing the different way in which they handled this storm that comes. At the very least, we know that storm's coming, right? Like, you know you're going to die at some point. I hope you do. Um, like, that, that's, that's coming. And, and the different way that I've seen people handle that has largely been based upon what they were founded on. Had they built their house on the rock or had they built it on the sand? So let's move over here, actually, and talk about the sand. Um, you see, Jesus says that there's another option. You don't have to build on the rock. You can also build on the sand. And uh, this is the guy who hears the words. So that would be all of you guys in here hearing the words still. Um, but he decides that he's not going to act on what it is that God said. He finds a nice little place over here. And you know what the, the nice thing about sand it's really easy to work with. Like, I can shape it into a lot of different things. It's, it's very, uh, almost, I don't know, flexible is probably not really the right word, but I, I can shape it in, into what I want it to be. And it's really easy to actually plant my, my life in this as well. I had to go home, I had to go, like, pre-drill that hole and everything over here. I can just drop this rod right into the sand here. It's nice and easy. It works with what I want it to be. You see, if I build on the rock, uh, I'm going to have to shape my life around the rock because the rock is hard, solid, and firm. It doesn't change. The rock changes me. But with the sand, well, I can change the sand however I want it to be. Maybe I'll even take a little bit of the teachings of Jesus and and I'll kind of throw that in there into some other concoction and a little bit of how I'm feeling that day. And if I want to change it later, uh, the the things that I believe or the things that that I base my life on, I can do that. The sand is, is able to work with that, right? But sand is not a good thing to build on, okay? Um, if you've ever built a sand castle before, I'm sure it's not standing anymore. Uh, <coughs> you know why? Sand is a terrible foundation to build upon. It doesn't last. It's not trustworthy. It's weak. And so with these people, Jesus also says that the rains are going to come. The floods are going to come. And that the house will fall with a great crash. You see, Jesus said that not only did it fall, that, but that its fall was great. This is your life. Okay, this is not losing a football game. This is not getting an F on a test. This is your life. What you choose to build on is very, very important. Are you going to choose to build on the rock? Are you going to choose to build on the sand? If you choose to build your life on anything other than Jesus, you're building on the sand. If you're choosing, I'm going to shape my life around my career. I'm going to shape my life around my family. I'm going to shape my life around doing good things. Whatever, all this kind of stuff. That's building on the sand. And you know what? Family's a great thing. Doing well in your career, good thing. Doing good to others, definitely a good thing. Um, but they're not good foundations. Right? If you have your foundation as Jesus, he'll lead you into all these other kind of good things that, that you need to be doing. So I want to close by drawing attention uh, to the last two verses of our passage. It says, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority 
and not as their scribes. So the crowds were amazed at Jesus. All the, I mean, and he's dropped some serious wisdom on us, right? Okay, so like, just in of itself, the content has been incredible. So there's, there's reason to be amazed. But that's not the only reason that they were astonished. Um, it was almost more so because of his style. It says, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. What does it mean uh, when the Bible says this? Well, when the scribes would teach, uh, they would quote other scribes, okay? Uh, they, they knew that they didn't really have the authority in and of themselves to speak for God. So it's kind of like, hey, I'll say this, and I know I can trust saying it because this guy said it, and this guy said it, and this guy said it, okay? Even the way that I teach up here, right? Like, I, I use a lot of scripture when I teach. You know why? Because I don't have authority, okay? Like, my, my goal is to point you to the one who does have authority. That's why I want the scripture to be what teaches you. My, my job is kind of just to, to guide you into what that's saying, okay? I'm kind of like a facilitator of sorts. I don't, I'm not, I, I don't want you getting my ideas. I want you getting scripture's ideas because that's the words of God, and those are the words that have authority. So when the scribes would teach, they, they wanted to make sure that they weren't just necessarily teaching out of their own authority because they knew that they didn't really have any. But when Jesus would teach, he taught differently. We saw some of what he said, right? Where he would say, you've heard this, but I tell you this. He said that several times throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And guess what? He didn't quote any other rabbis. He didn't quote some other person that was wise in another age or anything like that. He said, you've heard this, but I tell you this. Who has the kind of authority to teach like that? Only God. Only God has the kind of authority to be able to speak and let his own words stand for itself, right? You know what Jesus said in the Great Commission? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. You see, Jesus is God in the flesh. What we're celebrating at Christmas, by the way, this, this month, is what we call the incarnation. And that, that's not a flower. That is... Um, carnal, the idea of flesh. It's God taking on flesh. God coming into the flesh, right? John chapter 1 verse 14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we're celebrating here. And so God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, is here preaching. And he's imploring us, listen to my words. Build your house on the rock. I have the authority to tell you what is true, what is right. I know what's going to happen. I know that there are two gates. And I know that most people are going to choose the wrong one. I know that people are going to come to me in the last day and think that they're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, and they will not. He's telling us all this kind of stuff in advance. And you can choose to either live by your own authority, to build over here on the sand, the thing that, that changes and morphs with however you want it to be. Or you can choose to build your house on the rock. The very words of Jesus Christ, the only one who truly has the ability to teach with authority. So as you find yourself at this crossroads, my prayer is that you would say, man, do I want to live my life on, on my authority, my very limited knowledge, my limited wisdom, my limited insight? Or do I want to listen to Jesus, the one who teaches different than the scribes and the Pharisees, the one who teaches different from anybody else? Because as he speaks, he's speaking the very word of God. Let's pray. Um, <clears throat> God, we love you so much, and we just thank you that you love us. God, we thank you for what we're celebrating at Christmas, that, that Jesus came in the flesh, that he dwelt among us. God, that he um, taught us what is good and what is right. God, that he has given us a solid and firm foundation 
upon which to build our lives, God. We thank you that we can be seen no longer as doers of lawlessness because of what your son Jesus has done on the cross. God, we want to worship you. We just pray that uh, as we sing these last few songs, our praises would rise to you, that, that you uh, would experience joy, God, that you, you would be pleased with our praise, God, not just in the words that we say, Lord, that they wouldn't be empty, but that they would be true, that they would be backed up by our lives, God, that we would have true faith that manifests itself in works. God, we love you so much. We thank you for who you are, and we ask this in your son's awesome name. Amen. So uh, as our last service, we want to uh, celebrate communion, which is um, a, a practice that we do to commemorate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, when Jesus was at the Last Supper with his disciples, he uh, broke the bread that they had, and he said, you know, take, take and eat. This is my body 